welcome to The Detour. I'm Adam Davis. I want to tell you here at the start of this episode about a statue in a park not far from where I spent some years of my childhood. The park was called Lincoln Park, and further from where I was, there was a statue of President Lincoln. But that's not the statue I want to tell you about. The statue I have in mind was smaller than the one of President Lincoln, though it too was of a man with a beard wearing a suit. This smaller statue was good to climb on, and that's all I knew about it. If you managed to scramble to the top of it and to sit or stand on the flat granite that backed the smooth bronze, you felt pretty tall. There you were, face to face with an unmoving man with a beard and a suit. For most of the years that I climbed on this statue, I didn't know who this man was, and I don't think I cared. When I got too old to climb on the statue, when it would have been beneath me to do so, I read the fading plaque on the statue's side and learned that the bearded man was Green Vardaman Black, one of the founders of modern dentistry. I had been scrambling around for years on a bronzed representation of Green Vardaman Black, innovative dentist. Who thought to erect a statue of Green Vardaman Black on the south edge of Chicago's Lincoln Park? Who designed it and built it, and who paid for it? What was the statue of this influential dentist supposed to mean? or to do? And why did I, as a kid, see this statue as nothing more than something to climb on? In this episode of The Detour, we talk with David Harrelson and Clint Smith about monuments, memorials, and statues, and also about culture, understanding, and hopes for the future. Talking about memorials, as Harrelson and Smith make immediately clear, you can't help but talk about values, and also about people, and people's Recently, talking about memorials, monuments, and statues has also meant talking about toppling, contextualizing, replacing, and reimagining, all more serious and more thoughtful activities than climbing, and more vexed, too, not child's play. As we turn to these two conversations, I want to ask what you think monuments, memorials, and statues are or should be for. I want to ask you to think of one or two memorials that you remember from your childhood. And I also want to ask you to listen in pretty well as David and Clint talk about the time before us and the time to come, and about intimate history, family history, and how best to mark the histories and shape the futures of the many people that live here. David Harrelson is the Cultural Resources Manager for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. He's also a historian and a member of the Oregon Arts Commission. David has long been a champion of public art and has worked to use ancestral art forms for the purpose of public art. David speaks about memorials in a dynamic, changing, temporal way. Something to engage with, something that is representative of society now. I spoke with David in August 2022 at the X-Ray FM studios in Portland, Oregon. Do you remember as a kid, is there a monument or a memorial that made a particular impression on you? Yeah, there isn't. And that is odd. And it's something that I've had to face and that it was never really something that impacted or really I noticed or was aware of until I went and worked in Washington, D.C. And so how old were you when you were in D.C. and those started to register? Yeah, it was after undergraduate uh, I was around 22, 23 years old. 
do you think you started to notice them because of where you were in terms of your age and who you were becoming, or was it more that they were all around and and that's why they registered for you? I think it's that combination of they were omnipresent. Um, I also think that I was becoming a lot more aware because I was immersing myself working on the Hill in Congress. And so when you're learning about power structures and dynamics and how things are done, you start to look around and realize the world and what's shaping that world and how people are, you know, defining the physical space that they're in. And there seemed to be a relationship Mm -hmm. between what was going on in Congress and then the physical landscape that was all around. That's interesting. The landscape that we sort of, that whether you work on politics or more likely don't, that landscape you work through has a lot to do, or walk through, has a lot to do with the power structure underneath. Yeah, and I think that that came from being a historian, right? And that's sort of what I was trained as. But then also as an indigenous person, which place is sort of the base of everything. Everything begins with place and functions of time and story and everything is based on that common experience because when you walk through place, you share that. And so those are some ideas that that came in being around the Capitol building and seeing that and wanting to know the deeper history because all these people that were moving through that space were sharing place. But So there's an indigenous concept of how I was raised and to think about my home and then I was going to a new place as a guest, Mm -hmm. even if it was my nation, my country, right? Like it was new to me. I was a guest. So I was interested in what that baseline was. And Mm -hmm. I so inquisitively looked around. Uh Yeah. In DC, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Once you notice one, you see they're, they're everywhere and there's often words too, along with these big sculptures and, Whereas out here in the Pacific Northwest, as you suggested at the beginning, not so much. Do you, I guess first, uh, do you agree that we don't that there's a relative paucity of monuments and memorials out here? Uh, whether you agree with that or not, like is that a good like should we be surrounded by sculptures and other monuments, or is it better to let the place itself more organically uh, emerge? Yeah, well, I think that that's some of the processing that I've like worked through and. As I came back from D.C., I went to work for my tribe, my community, and it really grounded a lot of the way that I think about place. So, no, I, I don't, because I really have internalized this tribal teaching that our history is written upon the landscape. And I think that landscape and place are like these connectors of people through time, through through lived experience, association, mm-hmm. historical events. And um, to me, it's just the whole concept of a monument is sort of uh, invasive. It sort of seeks to define something as opposed... It, I don't think it has to, which, which is maybe the other part of it. And, and I really want to challenge this idea that we try to reimagine monuments... Mm-hmm to do something that is a little bit more in line with like indigenous ways of knowing and understanding a place. And what's interesting is it's not new. I think that to observe in the Pacific Northwest, we have traditional monuments. They're here. We'll see them. But then it's also things like instead of a person, it's an elk statue Mm -hmm. or instead of um, a person on a horse, it's a, a burial canoe 
of Chinookan people at the mouth of the Columbia River. Um, these are all things that existed generations mm-hmm. before I you know, was around and thinking about tribal things. So I think that there's a lot to borrow on in sort of that's representative. There's still those other traditional monument-like things, but people have been pushing uh, a different way of doing or thinking about monuments, and I think it's in greater respect of place, history, landscape uh, mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest. So at the beginning of that comment, you said the whole concept of monuments are invasive. And I want to go to really the first part of that sentence, which is like the concept of a monument. Uh huh. What's your understanding of what that concept is? Yeah. What, what is the concept of a monument? I guess that's the challenge. To me, I think if you make it really basic, it's to mark place, time, events. I think that the way that it gets represented is very reflective of the last hundred plus years and that the stories that people are telling by marking important events, place and time have this like theme that's following like industrialization. Mm. It's following legacies of manifest destiny. It's, you know, very deeply tied to all of these like colonial actions that I believe like are layered as one seam of history but yet the basis of place and history is much deeper. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at that like temporal time or looking at it from a time perspective, I'm really interested in trying to reflect things or have things that reflect much deeper traditions. And to give an idea about time, right? I talked about a hundred years and for most people, hundred years is a super long time, right? Yeah. That's like ancient. Yeah. Well, that's a part of that concept of being native. Like, we say we've been here since time immemorial. Well, it's like, well, what's that? Well, that's literally since no, a time that no one can remember. Mm. And the oldest things that we remember are thousands of years ago events that happened that match up geologically where these cultural teachings and these like scientific ideas come together and are confirmed. Events like the Bonneville landslide that plugged up the Columbia River you know, 400, 500 years ago. The eruption of Mount Mazama that created Crater Lake seven, 9,000 years ago. The Missoula floods, right, that flooded the Willamette Valley with over 400 feet of water happening between thirteen and 18,000 years ago. So when we're talking about time, I think that we want to, like, get to that of talking about, like, sort of deep time and these forms that quite literally created the rich soil in the Willamette Valley that made farming possible, that has made it one of the richest farm areas of the, known in the world, right? So when you think think about that kind of time, how do you mark that? Mm-hmm. How do you call attention to stuff that happened 10,000 years ago, 17,000 years ago? Well, one of my takeaways of this too is that it's a way of thinking about the world that may come from a tribal perspective, but there's many people that have already operated in that thinking. Like it's not exclusive to just tribal people. This isn't a disruption mm-hmm. activity. What this is, is this is like almost an inclusive activity because place has this ability to unify. So some examples, almost daily on my drive to work, I drive past Glacial Erratic State Park, 
right? It's this little tiny state park, and it's a glacial erratic that came in on these flood events. There's a big rock halfway up the hill. Mm. No way to really explain how it got there, except for this huge flood event that happened. And it's one of the best places to see sunrise in the Willamette Valley, right? So, and, you know, all you have to do is drive down the highway, scramble up the hill, take a look, look out over and be like, wow, this rock is here. And the only way is the story that's mm. being told. And there's some interpretation on the site that does that. So that's a way that the state of Oregon has mm. been doing that, acknowledging those events mm. for a really long time. There's a hotel out in the North Willamette Valley that they named the Allison and the Allison is named after Lake Allison. Allison being the person that made that geological discovery that the Willamette Valley was flooded by these floods, right? So we're not using indigenous names for those events, although we have traditional stories, but yet we all have these common linkages to it. And some people are putting that forward and celebrating that understanding of place. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think that place... To think like, how does place emerge a little bit more centrally onto people's consciousness? And that may be getting harder as we change place, literally make over place. More roads, more pavement, more buildings. So what place was is a little bit harder to see, which in a, in a strange way seems like an argument for, if not monumentalizing the place that was, in some way more deliberately calling attention to what a place was as that place kind of disappears. What, what about that? How to deal with the reality of disappearing past as we move into the future? Yeah, you know, this theme reminds me of a lot of the ways that we think about time in Western world, which is this idea that time in front of us, you can't see as well but time behind you, you, you can. Hmm. And so it's very different from tribal teachings and perspective. There's an idea that everything is kind of happening at the same time and reliving itself. And it's, a, it's like conceptually a very different way of thinking about things. So, you know, now is this moment, but you're obligated by different social teachings and other actions to have the past inform as well as the future. It It's something that's regularly heard amongst different tribal people that will talk about this, this idea of the seven generations. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear that from tribes all across the nation of this idea of planning for seven generations out. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there's this whole system of like obligation and reciprocity to the past. Can I follow up what you just said by asking about when the horizon, both back and forward, is, is long relative to, say, uh, a non-Indigenous American approach, and when the horizons are, in a way, so closely related to each other, how to, in the current moment, try to mark stuff, to mark the important stuff? One of the pieces about trying to do this work is that you're having to follow that like affirmation and like look to your community. Like it takes a community to process. It takes listening. It's it's being inquisitive, but being open and allowing things to shape of like what would work. And so it it centers less of the individual. And that I think is a really challenging thing to do in today's world, especially being out West 
how we are, right? Rugged. Our rugged individualism of the American West, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, I also grew up here, right? I'm all of those things too, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not, I'm not only a Kalapuya person from the Willamette Valley who's indigenous of this place. I'm also a product of all of the lived experience that informs everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so I have Throughout my life, I've also struggled with that of being like, is that the path that I'm going to choose of feeling these forces of rugged individualism and the ability to be the one person that makes it happen? Or I'm the, you know, creative disruptor, entrepreneurial person, right? That doesn't seem to have much resonance, like within a traditional cultural community of where our people came from. And the only way that I can be affirmed of that is through dialogue, conversation with Mm. my fellow community members about where we're going, how does it work? And that's maybe what is missing so much. You got to engage in community dialogue, civic engagement, because there's all these forces that seem to be minimizing that while there aren't the same spaces that are available where people are actually maintaining cultural communities, whether it's a tribal one, whether it's a a local community, whether it's religiously based, um, however it is, the community seems to be wavering from from my lived experience. It's it's super interesting, and it makes me think back to your description of your experience in D.C. and uh, how many statues and monuments are of individuals, uh, you know, great men or more recently say great people Uh, but it is this we're going to memorialize individuals as a way of telling the story about cultures and communities and there's something about that way of doing it that necessarily retells a story about individuals so can we talk about herons for a minute yeah Uh, you've been working on with other folks a memorial involving herons can you can you describe that a little bit? Why that choice and how it might look? Because that sounds like it's pushing in the directions we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a long Clackamas cultural tradition of uh, placing carved herons down by the river as the watchers that watch for the fish runs. Um, and there's a whole cultural protocol to that that leads to our first fish ceremony. It's something that we still do today. We do as an individual private community, small events. But this idea of this ongoing Clackamas cultural practice that we maintain in our community, it's more of a private affair. We got curious and I got inquisitive and I asked the other people who were a part of this activity. I said, is there some way that we can share some of our cultural teachings since they're the teachings of this place in a way that's public? That we keep doing what we do privately, but, you know, a part of what this does for us as a community is it centers our attention on the river. It puts us into relationship with place, with salmon, with herons, which all, you know, because we place the herons out on the river, they're watching for the fish. When the fish come up the river, we catch the first fish, right? Then we bring the carved herons Mm. to the event where we cook the fish and then we eat the fish as a community. And traditionally in the past, no one was allowed to fish for five days afterwards. So the first run of fish that comes up the river gets to go up the river to spawn, Mm -hmm. which means that, right, it renews the cycle. Right. Um, And so those are sort of like cultural teachings. So that was the inception of this 
hey, let's ask this question. And then a series of conversations with different community members and people that lead that ceremony to bring come up with this idea of, well, let's do a seasonal installation, but let's invite artists, different artists, to design these large sculptural element, you know, graffiti resistant, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You know, our wood carvings are... They're not monumental. They're human scale. They're one-to-one scale, right? We put them out on the shores of the river. And one of the translations to that was, for us, the herons are only out there a really short period of time. But we're like, well, let's um, put out the herons during the whole spring fish run. Mm. Um, And we have a really imperiled fish population runs on the river themselves. And I think that the hope is to like, help people understand that there's fish in the river by having like a physical representation on shore. It's interesting to think in that particular example, uh, there's dedication to memorializing and calling attention to the place and culture and built into it the idea that the way it's done and who it's done by will continue to change. And that itself seems like uh, a big departure from the way much memorializing is done. This is pretty complicated. Who should be the leading voices in determining how culture remembers what this place is, where it comes from, and helps shape what it might become? Uh, especially because there's so much movement now, things change fast. Uh, how do you think about that big question? Yeah. You have to be hyper-specific or intentionally broad Mm. and inclusive. And you basically keep going in a direction until you hear no, and then you stop going in that direction, right? So it really is like the way that you build consensus is sort of this lowest common denominator. Mm. Like, does this idea work? Does it work? Does it work? No, it doesn't work. Turn your attention to another thing. Like, keep coming up with new ideas. Be creative. And I think that the challenges come when people try to strike the middle ground Hmm. and do something that isn't as universally understood. So it's easier to do that because it's a Clackamas tradition, and I'm able to, like, work that way and work with Clackamas people to bring that forward. If I tried to make, like, a fisheries monument of the lower Columbia River— that is like the middle ground that is going to have so many voices mm-hmm. and be almost, it makes it so weighty that it's almost impossible to build consensus, right? Because there's so many voices. So it's that idea of making something that can be ephemeral, that gives you the opportunity to try, to test out, to engage in community dialogue, because inevitably something will go wrong. Mm-hmm. Somebody will do something that's offensive. Something like that's what happens when you do things, but it shouldn't stop you from doing them. Mm-hmm. But approaching things with humbleness and understanding that that's going to happen, and know that you're in a relationship and you're going to make things right, and right, that's that like human component that we can't architect and design it to be perfect from the beginning. We got to figure it out by starting to do it. Yeah, so much of what we've been talking about is around that. It's around how to build and deepen people's understanding of the place they live in and the people that have helped shape that place and what the place and the people might become. 
And it's hard to work on understanding and it's hard to work on it deliberately and have it go in the ways we hope. So I, I just want to point to the complexity there and that that helped me when you said that understand some of what the, the effort is for. Mm-hmm. Maybe as a way of closing, I want to ask you, like, as you do this work and as you talk to a lot of people trying to do this work together, do you find that there's a persistent question or a naughty question that continues to arise for you that that you haven't gotten the answer to or figured out the answer to? Are there or a couple of questions that keep coming up? You know, there's a paradox of people that want to hold natives as this kind of magic Indian that knows everything. And meanwhile, in the same breath and the same action of doing that, seem to not be able to allow Native people attributed like the basic sets of humanity that we expect of all people. And so as a tribal person, we're magic and we're also lacking of like qualities attributable to humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's in the past and in the present. And it's this paradox. And it's such a challenge because... Mm -hmm we're trying to live in that time continuum that I talked about and like make a difference. So we might be provided an opportunity, but it comes with this baggage. And yet that often isn't recognized because it's, it's also this mentality that seems to exist of like free information and open input. And there isn't that obligation and reciprocity Mm -hmm. of exchange where where that is sort of from the tribal perspective of things, it's like, okay, well, we're in relationship and we're going to like exchange and we're going to go back and forth. Mm. People are like holding those two paradoxes when they're approaching things. And so it can be hard to make a difference, but that's the naughty thing that Mm. I, you know, get challenged with is it's like, I want to help. I want to do my best, but then I'm trying to overcome this conflict and paradox that is really hard to point out to people because it can make them feel vulnerable or frustrated mm-hmm. or uh, shame, shameful, mm-hmm. right? But it seems omnipresent mm-hmm. in trying to do the work of like bringing things like this forward. Um, monuments are an opportunity to reflect your community. And I think that if people don't see themselves or their communities represented in those monuments, that they should seek ways that they can be represented. Um, And I would say that the other part about it in doing that work, if you're going to do it in a way, don't think of it, be forewarned about scarcity thinking and think abundantly. Just because something already exists doesn't mean that something else can't also exist. So make more. David Harrelson is the Cultural Resources Manager for the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic, a poet, and the author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint has done a lot of thinking about memorials, He grew up in New Orleans, where there are memorials to Confederates who owned enslaved people in a majority black city. 
Clint asks, to what extent are places being honest about their relationship to history? And to what extent are they hiding from it? I spoke with Clint as part of Oregon Humanities Consider This program in April 2021. I fundamentally believe that unless we understand in a, in a, in a sort of national context and in an international context, the historical processes and decisions that have shaped what our contemporary landscape looks like, um, then we will fail to create the necessary solutions or, or we will be grounding possible solutions in sort of um, ahistoricism. Right. You know, so so, for example, the book is about different places across the country and how they reckon with or fail to reckon with our relationship to the history of slavery. And so I go to different places across the country um, and consider to what extent is this place that has a very specific relationship to slavery running from directly confronting or doing something in between. Um, and and I'm I'm doing that in part because. Slavery is one of those things that like the insidiousness of white supremacy makes us feel like we talk about it all the time, right? They're like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, like I, I know about Frederick Douglass. I know about Harriet Tubman. I watched 12 Years a Slave. You know, I know about slavery. Um, that was such a long time ago. But it wasn't that long ago, right? Like I think all the time about my, uh, my grandfather who was born in 1930, Jim Crow, Mississippi. Um, and there will be moments where my, you know, this was in the before times. We haven't seen him since COVID, but where my, you know, three-year-old son would be sitting on my 90-year-old grandfather's lap. And I imagine my 90-year-old grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. Mm. And in that moment, I'm reminded that my grandfather's grandfather was someone who was born into slavery. And that this mm-hmm. thing that we tell ourselves was a long time ago was not, in fact, that long ago at all. That the woman who stood next to the Obama family in 2015 to open the National Museum of African American History and Culture was the daughter of an enslaved person. Right, like her father had been enslaved, and and so there are people who are still alive, who are who loved, who had relationships with, who who were raised by people who had been born into intergenerational chattel slavery, right? Mm-hmm. The and that you know slavery in this country, or what would ultimately become this country, has exist existed for a hundred years longer than it hasn't. You know, like we had slavery for you know if we consider the beginning, um, sixteen nineteen, and the end eighteen sixty five. You know, slavery was existed in this country for around 250 years. And we've not even we've not come close to that period of time. And so all that's to say, I'm fascinated by how deeply this book was driven because it is clear to me that slavery still is the slavery is the origin point of so much inequality that continues to persist today. And the treatment that it often gets in public discourse, in classrooms, is not at all commensurate with the economic, social, cultural, or political impact that it has had on our contemporary landscape of inequality. Um, mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go to these places like a, like an Angola prison, which is one of the places that I go, um, and think about, well, what does it mean that this prison, uh, the largest maximum security prison in the country, is built on top of a former plantation. 75% of the people held there are black men. 70% of them are serving life sentences. It's a bigger than the size of Manhattan. Um, 
And, and again, it is built on top of a former plantation. And what I tell people is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would mm. be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be such an affront to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist, and rightfully so. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which men go out into fields in the morning and in the, in the evening and continue to work on land that was once a plantation with someone watching over them with, on horseback with a rifle over their shoulder, you know, working for virtually no pay. Uh, and most of them are black men serving life sentences. I mean, so, so what, is the, what are the ways that racism and white supremacy not only enact violence against people's bodies, but also you were talking about memory collectively numb us to certain types of violences um, that would otherwise in different contexts be wildly unacceptable? And what is the failure of America's collective memory that allows that place to exist and that place to, to look the way that it does in ways that reflect, I think, uh, a failure of this country to, to reckon with how Slavery has continued, you know, both these sort of imagery and symbolism and iconography, um, but also the spirit in many ways of, of slavery and enslavement to, to continue to persist. Again, there's a lot, and that's an incredibly vivid and I would say horrifying um, example, uh, the Angola example, and the analogy, which is hard not to feel the power of. Uh, mm. And I would just tell you that it's interesting, interesting also your emphasis on like time and the people who we have relationships with um for my family you know comes from a part of poland that they left those who could leave and those who didn't were killed the, mm-hmm. and so we we actually don't have the possibility to go back in that way you make mm-hmm. an argument in a sort of recent piece for like intimate history talk to talk mm-hmm. to family members like uh mm-hmm. And I think I just want to ask a little bit about that. Uh, how does that work, bringing family relationships and an understanding of sort of the country's uh, not fully reckoning with itself? How, how do you put those together? Yeah, I, I'm sort of obsessed with family history and oral history. Um, and I part of what happened is so I was reading the um, – over the course of, of writing this book, I was reading the Federal Writers Project uh, documents and narratives. And so for those who aren't familiar, the Federal Writers Project was an initiative that happened between 1936 and 1938 as part of uh, FDR's New Deal. And it was meant, it had a couple of purposes. It was meant to employ um, writers who had been laid off. And so it employed thousands of, of writers um, who during, you know, this is sort of after the, after the Depression, um, and sent them all across the country to collect these stories of, of what made America, America, in essence. And part, a big part of that initiative was collecting the stories of people who were formerly enslaved. And so this is 1936 to 1938. So the people who were still alive, who had lived through slavery, had been, they were very old, and they had also been children um, mm-hmm. around the time abolition happened. And so part of, there was a recognition that we didn't have a really robust uh, collection of 
interviews and stories of people who were formerly enslaved and that these people were about to pass away and something needed to be done to collect those stories. And so there were over 2000 stories and interviews that were done um, with people who were formerly enslaved and, and the, the power of, of these stories is so profound. And so I was reading these narratives and I was really interested in the idea that these stories had been collected before these folks had passed away. And they were so important because so much of the emphasis of the stories that were given around um, the history of slavery is around Frederick Douglass, is around Harriet Tubman, um, is around uh, people who were these sort of extraordinary individuals um, whose stories are worth sharing, but also who are not, whose stories aren't necessarily reflective of the sort of larger population of enslaved people, right? Like Frederick Douglass is not your average, not only average enslaved person, but your average person. Um, And so it doesn't really give you a sense of the sort of small quotidian daily nature of what slavery was, Mm -hmm. because this was such an extraordinary, non-representative human being. And I was thinking a lot about people who've lived through Jim Crow uh, Mm -hmm. and people who've lived through Jim Crow apartheid and how that generation is going to slowly begin, not even slowly, I mean, it's beginning to pass away. Um, and, you know, we, over the past few years, we've lost so many sort of giants of the civil rights movement. Uh, and, and, I, and also I was thinking about all of this and I was also doing this book and, and had this moment where I realized that I, as a researcher, as a writer, as a journalist, I've spent so much time asking strangers to tell me about their life stories. Um, and to tell me these sort of intimate parts of, of their lives. And I never really brought the same level of intentionality to my own family, you know, like I, and so part of what I did and I do in the epilogue of the book is sit down and have a conversation with my grandparents and try to get a sense of like, what was it like, you know, in a very intentional way over the course of multiple hours, like tell me what it was like to grow up in Mississippi in like 1930. What was it like in, in the 30s and in the 40s? What was that like same thing with my grandmother in in Florida, um, and and I just learned so much that I yeah. never would have otherwise known. Learned, you know, it's the kind of thing you get into the sort of when you bring a level of intentionality to it, you get into the types of things um, that you don't necessarily talk about in passing at Thanksgiving, or or might not yeah. come up when you're surrounded, you know, in in different contexts. But um, I was really grateful that I did that, and I try to emphasize to folks that that's. Um, it's such a powerful thing to do, you know, for, whether you're a black American or, or of any other group. I mean, I think to your, to your point, so many of our family members and our elders have lived through these profound moments in American history and world history. You know, one day some people are going to ask us, like, what was it like to live through the great plague of 2020 and 2021? Right now, there's so many efforts to uh, think about monuments and memory. And they're all, they, it feels like uh, in a way, people are paying more attention to memory now than they were five years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And some of the arguments seem to be, um, let's, not, let's not pay attention to this or let's pay attention to it in a certain way. Um, either because paying attention to it sort of re-traumatizes um, or because we want to make sure we're telling the accurate story. And if what we're thinking about is how we move forward, like, do do you have a take on, let's say, monuments and um, 
it's probably too general probably too general a question but is there a specific example that you've come across where you think here's how we should be addressing this attempt to memorialize what is a tough thing yeah so the book began in earnest in 2017 um when the statues of, of robert e lee jefferson davis pgt beauregard um when came down in New Orleans, and those are you know two Confederate generals and uh, the com- president of the Confederacy, and and as I was watching those statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that what it meant that I grew up in a in a city uh, in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were enslaved people, right? And like, how does that happen, especially in in any city, but in a majority black city? And again, when we talk about the sort of failure of memory. Um, thinking about how, like, the the construction of so many of these statues that sort of ornamented the edges of the city that I grew up in. Um, and, and, and having grown up there and never actually having been taught what those statues were and what they represented, right? Because they were, when you're a kid, you kind of pass it and there's these, these, you know, majestic statues that you drive by, you know, every day. And I think a lot about how I never learned, I never actually learned like what the Confederacy was, right? And that's part of the success of the lost cause is that it, it made it so that these statues were about heritage and honor and uh, states' rights and, and just, you know, uh, uh, an honoring of, of, uh, of a group of honorable people who did what they thought was best rather than what it was, which is a treasonous army who fought a war predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery. And then in what happens is that you say that, and then people are like, it, it, people try to turn it into an ideological statement rather than an empirical one, right? Rather than one that's actually grounded in history. Because, you know, I, re- I remember being a high school teacher and trying to teach very directly about slavery and getting some pushback because it's like, you know, people are like, oh, well, you got to be careful not to indoctrinate students with your political views. And it's like, I'm not indoctrinating people with my political views. I'm just saying, this is what the primary source documents say, right? Like all you have to do is go to the declarations of Confederate secession in 1861, where a state like Mississippi says, our interests are thoroughly aligned with, with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interests in the world, right? Like they make no, it's not, there's nothing confusing about why they left the union. <laughs> they said it for themselves. They were not vague about it. They thought Abraham Lincoln, after the election of 1860, was going to take their enslaved workers away. Uh, and they, thus they had to secede and fight this war in order to protect and expand, hopefully for them, the, the institution of chattel slavery. And so there is no context in which I think that a statue and on a public grounds of someone who fought a war based upon that cause, I don't, there's, that statue shouldn't be up, right? Like if you want to put a statue of Robert E. Lee in your backyard, that's your business, you know? But like in front of a courthouse, in a park, in, a, in the middle of a street uh, that is funded by taxpayer dollars, you know, like Confederate monuments kind of are like the low hanging fruit of this debate to me. That's the easy thing. I think there are hard, harder conversations. Yeah, I think there are harder conversations to be had about some other statues and some other monuments yep. and some other people that that are tricky. And I think, you know, yep. people of good faith can have different ideas about what should be done with the statues of some of these folks. But I think, you know, more g- generally, I'm interested in how can we think differently about what 
memorialization looks like and what and the role that monuments are even supposed to play in in our country you know some i'm i'm interested in monuments to sort of collectives of people more so than individuals you know one of my favorite monuments is uh to the 44th uh, the 45th Infantry, uh, Massachusetts Infantry in Boston, which was the mm-hmm. the elite uh, all-Black infantry um, unit of uh, Black soldiers who fought for the Union in the Civil War. They had, you know, the movie Glory with Denzel Washington was uh, made based on that that group of folks. And, and then there's another one in D.C. that is uh, a monument to sort of all 200,000 Black Union soldiers who fought in the Civil War. Um, and that's more interesting to me because it is a recognition that history is changed through collective action um, rather than through individuals. Even things that are ostensibly individual decisions uh, or presented to us as individual decisions like Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation is actually the result of many, many people pushing and pulling um, Lincoln to make a set of decisions. You know, like, does that ha- decision happen without Frederick Douglass? Did that decision happen without hundreds of years of enslaved people pushing, um, you know, pushing the abolitionist cause in way and fighting for something that they knew that they might never see, but knew they had to fight for anyway. Um, and, and the historian David Blight talks about how, uh, what would it look like if we had, if we had statues or memorials or monuments to sort of aspirations or ideas, right? Like what is a monument to, to abolition look like that is not a person or embodied or personified in a person. Um, what does, and what does it look like to have monuments that sort of represent who we aspire to be um, or who we are trying, what we're trying to move toward that serve as, you know, so that we have not only reminders of our past, but also reminders of what we're trying to, to move toward. And I'm not a visual artist, so I can't say specifically what those would look like, but I do think there is room and the possibility of, of saying, hey, like, what would it look like to, instead of to drive past the statue of Robert E. Lee on my way to school every day, what would it look like to have drive, driven past uh, some sort of sculpture or something that is a reminder of um, justice or freedom or equity um, or, you know, some of so many of the promises uh, that this country made in its founding documents that it's yet to live up to. Well, it's interesting. I was just going to ask, so well parried, you anticipated the question about what something might look like. Um, and you had a good sort of, don't ask me that. I don't, I'm not a visual artist. I would have said the same thing. I can't tell that's on them, but I do think, I mean, you're not far from Washington DC and I know the experience of walking around DC is to be surrounded by both monuments and phrases which are supposed to speak to our aspirations. And Mm. there are times walking around D.C. when every one of those rings painfully. Uh, It feels like, how could we have these words up or this Mm. aspirational figure up and feel so far from it? Mm. It's almost like a reminder of our shortcomings. Um, I, I think my question there is, how do you do both things? How do you both call attention empirically to the, the terrible stuff, the ways we're falling mm-hmm. short, and appeal to what you were just describing, which is something that may not yet exist, but we want to point towards? How do you do both of those things together? Mm-hmm. 
It's a good question. I mean, I, I you know, they certainly aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and something I've been thinking a lot about recently, um, I brought up Germany before. Uh, they have something in Berlin called the Stumbling Stones. Um, that's the sort of English translation. I can't pronounce what it is in, in German. Um, but it's these sort of, these bricks that are like slightly elevated off the ground. And on the bricks are the names, uh, you know, the brick might be in front of an Apple store or it might be in front of um, a hotel. It might be in front of, um, you know, a, a jewelry shop. And my understanding is that when you walk in, in front of these places and you see these bricks on the ground, they have the names of um, the people who were taken from those mm-hmm. homes, the homes that had once been there um, and sent to their death in concentration camps. Um, and so you, you can't walk into this Apple store without knowing that like that store was once the home of a Jewish family who were taken from their home and sent to Auschwitz or sent to any, you know, any number of these death camps. And that is so, that's so powerful to me. And it's not to say that Germany doesn't have issues around anti-Semitism. It's not to say Germany sure. doesn't, is doing it perfectly, but it's such a powerful example yeah. of what it means to, to situate the sort of, that sort of iconography in places that like make sure you are always being reminded of it. Right. And like, what would that look like in the U.S.? What would it look like if we had stumbling stones or any iteration, you know, sort of artistic iteration of that, that remind every place we went reminded like this place used to be is uh, is a place where enslaved people used to be sold. Or this place is a place, um, you know, used to be where there um, were where enslaved auctions were held. This place used to be the home of um this prominent enslaver or in on the other side, like this place was the home of these enslaved people, right? Almost focusing more on the people who were enslaved than simply the ones who were doing the oppressing. But it, it would, I think our understanding of inequality in this country, I think our understanding of the origins and manifestations of, of anti-black racism and white supremacy would be far more sophisticated and would be far more collectively comprehended and sort of oriented if we had these collective reminders that we had to encounter all of the mm. time. And I think that that, you know, we talk about the the past and the future. I mean, I think that that would shape policy, right? Because we know that like symbols and narratives uh, are symbols and monuments shape the narratives we tell and the narratives yeah. we tell shape the policies we create and the policies we create shape the, material conditions of people's lives, right? So none of this is is disconnected. Um, because if you're not understanding why inequality looks the way that it does today, then you fall into the trap of thinking that some people live in the conditions they do because they may have done something to deserve it, rather than because things have been done to these communities decade after decade after decade after decade. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic. You can find links to Clint and David's work in our show notes at oregonhumanities.org. The Detour is produced by Kieran Bond. Dave Friedlander is our editor. 
Our assistant producers are Ben Waterhouse, Alexandra Powell-Bugden, and Karina Brisky. Thanks for listening. See you next time.